Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. What's up, my friends? Welcome to Stand Strong in the Word podcast. So glad to be with you guys once again as we dive into the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. I hope you've been following along these past few months, if not, I think, past year or, or close to two years. I'm not sure now, but today is podcast 66. And the question before us as we continue a chronological teaching of the life and teaching of Jesus Christ is, what are you willing to give up for Jesus? So, friend, whatever you are doing right now, just pause and think of that question before you give an immediate response. What are you willing to give up for Jesus? Now, if you've been a Christian for quite some time, perhaps you have given up things for Jesus. Now, obviously, we know in the totality of salvation, we don't give up anything for Jesus. He has given up his life for you and for me. He's paid our infinite debt, right? That's how amazing God's love is for us. But in the context of life itself, as you and I live in this world, as we have one life to live, there are things that God has called you as God has called me to do. And oftentimes you hear a lot of believers who don't put their total stock in God's will for their life. And so that is going to be what we're going to be looking at today. Now, if you've missed anything, as always, standstrongministries.org. The podcast information is there on SoundCloud. We're also on iTunes, Google Play, Stitch, whatever you use, whatever platform we are available. Now, if for whatever reason you want us to be at a different market and you want to have access to the podcast, uh, make sure that you guys email us at info at org, and we would be just thrilled to help you in any which way. And drop me a note if you have a prayer request or you have a theological question or question uh, in the teachings that we're going through right now here on Stand Strong in the Word, please uh, use that email to contact me and we will do our best to get to you as soon as possible. So to bring us up to speed now, Jesus, he just, remember, he turns his attention to Judea. So this is roughly around 8029 to about 8031, okay, roughly around that time. This is almost at the last year now of Jesus. And at this stage where we find ourselves at today, uh, a large portion of Matthew records this time period of Jesus. Matter of fact, if you look at Matthew chapter 19 all the way to chapter 25, a lot of this period of time when Jesus is in Judea, Matthew records these. So today we're going to be jumping around. We're going to be looking at John chapter 7, 2 through 9. And then we're going to be looking at a second event where Jesus is rejected by the Samaritans in Matthew 19, Mark 10, 1, Luke 9, 51 through 56. And then we're going to look at a third event. And this is really going to be the challenge of the cost of true discipleship in Matthew 8, 18 through 22 and Luke 9, 57 through 62. So as you can see, we do have a lot to cover as usual on the podcast. So let's jump right into it and see what the Lord has to speak to us today in his word. So in John chapter 7, verse 2 through 9, here Jesus' brothers, they reject him. And we're told here in John's gospel, now the Jews, their feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. 
For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast, and I'm not going up to the feast, for the time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Okay, so notice this takes place during the Jews' Feast of, of Booths. It says it was at hand. So they are entering into this time period. Now, the Feast of Booths is also known as the Feast of Ingathering. You can see this in Leviticus 23, 33 through 44, Deuteronomy 16, 16. Now, this was the last of the three pilgrimage festivals, roughly around September, October. And it was a feast of thanksgiving for the harvest. One commentary said it was a happy time. Devout Jews lived outdoors in booths made of tree branches for seven days as a reminder of God's provision in the desert during their forefathers' wanderings. The feast also signified that God dwells with his people. So in this context right now, this is a great celebration. And it's at this time that the brothers of Jesus are telling him that you need to leave and go to Judea, to Judea, and your brothers, they need to see the works that you're doing. For no one, they tell him, works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. Now, what what's going on here? Now, a couple things. This word leave here literally means to change location, to move on to a new subject. So in essence, what the brothers were saying to Jesus, they've been, they're like evaluating his ministry. And they're saying, you need to change things up. You know, what you're talking about, how you're presenting yourself, you need to do it differently. This word here also may see, so that your disciples may see, means to experience. They need to observe the works you are doing. For no one works in secret, in hidden, in private, they're saying to Jesus. And then they said this, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. In essence, they're saying, make it clearly, fully known. And in order to do this, he says, when they when they say, when you seek if you seek to be known openly, meaning if you show more boldness and confidence, if you make yourself known publicly, then people will fully know you. So Jesus's brothers, they wanted him to take advantage of the Feast of Booths and prove that he was the Messiah because they felt that he needed to do more because the crowds and the religious leaders, including his own family, still didn't believe he was truly the son of God. And so their recommendation was for him to make himself a public spectacle when, of course, Jesus's intent was to exemplify humility and suffer on a cross. And before I look at verse five, it's important to note that Jesus's brothers, they wanted him to come out publicly and establish his kingship as the Messiah during the time of the Feast of Booths. Now, knowing that the Feast of Booths is a foreshadowing of the second coming of Christ when he will rule and reign in Jerusalem and we will dwell with him in his millennial kingdom. So just, it's funny how they were pushing him to do this, but of course, Jesus came in John 4, he came to do the will of his father and that was to become the atoning sacrifice for you and me. And so here, when it says in verse five now, for not even his brothers believe, it just means that they didn't trust. They were not fully believers in him. The language used by Jesus' brothers indicates that they had great suspicion and prejudice about him, which explains why they didn't believe that he was the Messiah. 
So their advice was as much for his sake as it was for them. So it's interesting kind of looking at the Greek and seeing what commentators are saying. And some commentators are like, you know, they were like atheistic towards who Jesus was as a son of God. When in other commentators, and I tend to take this approach, is yeah, they didn't fully trust and believe in him. So a lot of them are skeptical, but they're trying to help him. Now let's look through uh, passages of scripture to kind of get a little bit more foresight in all this. Mark 3, 21 we are told, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. Now, I talked about that in previous podcasts if you want to check that out. John 1, 10 through 11, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. John 12, 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Now, it's interesting to note that when you now look into the New Testament after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, and you have 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, and 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, years later we read from Paul that Jesus' brothers became believers. Now, two more important ones that, that we can look at, but one in particular, James, the half-brother of Jesus, who becomes uh, the ruler in the church in Jerusalem and writes the first epistle to the church. So we see that many of them come to faith in their brother as the son of God. And so when you see Jesus's response to them, he says, my time is not yet come, but your time is always here. And then he says, but it hates me because I testify, literally, I witness to provide information, knowledge about it, that it works are of the evil one. So he's saying is, I'm not here to do the work of, of the world or be intimidated or influenced, or I'm here to appease man. You go up to the feast, he says. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. So rather than succumb to the pressures of his brothers, Jesus stays obedient to his true calling. He tells them that their approach and their time scale doesn't match with his because it doesn't match with the Father's. John mentions now throughout his gospel that Jesus's time has yet to come. He says that in John 2, 4, John 8, 20. He also says it here in John chapter 9. That was a usage that John oftentimes put. So that's important just to note. Now, after he said this, it says that he remained in Galilee. So staying in Galilee, what Jesus was doing is he was staying out of reach of the Jews. So remember, a lot of Jews were here because it was the Feast of the Booths of the Ingathering. And so he avoided that time, including his brothers. Now, the second event, where does Jesus then go? Well, we're told in Matthew 19, 1 and 2, Mark 10, 1, and Luke 9, 51 through 56, what Jesus does next. So our second event now is Jesus is rejected by the Samaritans. So his brothers confront him. They're skeptical. They're not believers. And now Jesus goes into an area to be with Gentiles and not with Jews, in this case, the Samaritans, and they reject him. So Matthew 19 says, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings with, of course, his brothers, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And then in Mark 10, verse 1, it says in the, in the, in the end, it says, And again, as was his custom, he taught them. So as this crowd comes, he's not only healing them, but Jesus is teaching them. Well, Luke's account in chapter 9, verses 51 through 56 says this, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now remember, go back to John chapter 9, the brothers are saying, Go to Jerusalem and show yourself at the Feast of the Booths. While Jesus' focus is on Jerusalem, but not on their timetable. So he goes off to Judea in this area, 
in Galilee. He does these teachings. We don't have any record of what he actually teaches, but we know he does some healing. And he sets his mind now, we're told in Luke 9, 51. And then verse 52 of Luke 9 says, and he sent messengers ahead of him and went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Now notice the preparations and the focus he has right now, not what the brothers wanted, but what God has called him to do, our, our heavenly father. And he says, but the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and they went on to another village. All right, this is a strange event. So let's unpack it and kind of make some sense of it. Now let's go back in Luke chapter nine, verse 51. It says, notice when the days drew near, that literally just means the days were being fulfilled for him to be taken up. That just means exaltation to the father. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. So Jesus knows his time's about up. He's gonna give up his life on the cross. Now, this is a new section that transitions by Luke. Now, I said in the opening of this podcast that this time period from Luke, from Matthew 19 to, to all the way to chapter 25 is Matthew giving this account. So when I said earlier, we don't know all the teachings that Jesus had with the Samaritans. We know only a few, but we also see a lot of the teaching that Jesus gives as he focuses into Jerusalem and he talks about some of the end times. That's when they get the, all of the discourse in Matthew 24, 25, etc., so at this point now in Luke's gospel, it's a new section that he transitions into. And it's the focus of showing, quite frankly, Jesus turning his focus to Jerusalem. Now let's go back to John very quickly. Remember that I said to you earlier that phrase that John oftentimes used, for my time has not yet fully come in John chapter 9 and verse 8. This is the kind of language that Luke is now using as he, he sets his focus, his face towards Jerusalem. So Jesus knows what awaits him, obviously, in Jerusalem, that he's going to be betrayed. He's going to suffer. He's going to die on the cross. This is referenced in Isaiah 50, verse 7. Remember, he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And many prophets spoke of him to come. And he had John the Baptist, who was prophesied by Malachi and Isaiah. And here in Isaiah 50, verse 7, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. So you see earlier in John, when you go back to John chapter seven, two through nine, Jesus's brothers attempted to get him to become more public. Yet Jesus refrained from complying. So we see him moving towards Jerusalem to fulfill his father's will. That's the whole focus here from all these accounts that we're getting right now. But when we see in Acts chapter one, this phrase, until the day when he was taken up. See, Luke is mentioning this in his first account, this he set his face up to Jerusalem. And then he starts his second account in the book of Acts about the ascension when he was taken up. See, that was a whole central focus that Jesus had. Now, when you look at Matthew 19, verse 2, and he went away from Galilee and he entered this region of Judea beyond the Jordan, what Jesus does is he he went back through the east side of the Jordan River. So he goes into Perea. And so if you were to look at this on the map, you realize that this is a long journey. Jesus goes a long way from Jerusalem to heal and teach these multitudes of people before heading to Jerusalem. He goes out of his way. This is not customary for Jews clearly not customary for people like Pharisees or Sadducees or rabbis. Now he sends people ahead of him to this village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. So he took a direct route through Samaria 
to get to Jerusalem. Now, this effort to extend his love and his healing to the Samaritans is powerful. We can't miss this. Jesus is a savior to the world. And despite the centuries of hate that the Samaritans had for the Jews and the Jews for the Samaritans, Jesus goes out of his way to show grace and truth and say, I have teachings for you. I can heal you guys. And then you look back at Luke chapter 9, verse 53, but the people, they didn't receive it because his faith was set towards Jerusalem. So previously Jesus entered, uh, he entered the, the, this region and he encountered the Samaritans and many people believed him back in John chapter 4, if you remember that with the woman by the well. But now these Samaritans are rejecting Jesus. And they, and they, they were held to the worshiping at Mount Gerizim. And they didn't want any Jewish influence in this region. And when the disciples hear about this, James and John, and notice, remember, Lord, do we want to, do we want to consume them? Do you want to, you want us to call fire to come down from heaven? This is an extraordinary way to put it. I, I know the Jews don't like the Samaritans, but where on earth do James and John get such uh, pride and in, in, in cockiness to think that they have the willpower to be like Elijah to send fire from heaven? So this reaction by James and John, it shows the disdain that they have for the Samaritans as well over this overprotection for Jesus, of course. Now, this suggestion, though, to call heaven, to call fire from heaven is ridiculous, okay? That's a ridiculous notion. And clearly, Jesus doesn't support it. So after all of this, the brothers telling Jesus what to do, the disciples going with him, long journey into this region with the Samaritans, and they ultimately reject him. He decides... At this time in Matthew 8, 18 through 22 and Luke 9, 57 through 62 to talk about the cost of true discipleship. So remember I asked you the question at the beginning of this podcast, what are you willing to give up for Jesus? Well, notice the response for Jesus's brothers. They were kind of saying, hey, this is what you should be doing. Well, we don't compromise things with the Lord. We don't give suggestions to the Lord. We don't try to get him to get on our side, right? The second thing we see with the Samaritans is when God extends his grace to us and his mercy, and he goes out of his way, if you will, to teach us, to be with us, we're not to reject him. And that's what they did. Now, this third thing is about true discipleship and the cost of it. So in Matthew 8, verse 18, it says, And when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and he said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to Jesus, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, when you jump to Luke 9, Verse 61, this is an addition. Luke puts this in account that Matthew doesn't. It says, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his own hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, a couple things. Notice that as they were going along the road, someone, a scribe, we're told in Matthew 8, 19, so a very smart individual, comes to Jesus and they want to follow Jesus. But this word follow here actually doesn't mean like when the disciples followed Jesus, when they gave up 
their nets. They gave up their livelihoods. It just means they wanted to, this scribe wanted to accompany him wherever he went. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So Matthew mentions there was a crowd around Jesus and prompts him to depart to the southeastern banks of Gadara. And there Jesus challenges the first person, the scribe, on his commitment to follow him based on the lack of common necessities. And of course, the scribe was not willing to deny himself in order to really follow Jesus. So the first encounter is a smart individual who comes to Jesus on his own terms, meaning I will accompany you wherever you go the way that he wanted to do it. Jesus is telling him, I don't have as much as you have here on this earth. And so the moment you think about that, that's going to be telling. Now, the second individual, Jesus asks or literally commands by saying, follow me. And the person says to him, Lord, let me first go bury my father. Of course, Jesus says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So not only does Jesus give this command to follow him, it's not the accompany term that was used in Luke chapter 9, with the scribe, remember the scribe was kind of basing the way that he wanted to approach Jesus and live among Jesus. This one is, you know, abandon all and, and, and follow me. This is like taking up the cross and follow me. And the person's response here was, let me go take care of uh, my loved ones before they die. And Jesus says, leave the dead to bear their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom. And so then he gives another duty and responsibility within this command of what he is called to do. Now, in this exchange, if you notice, Jesus calls a second person to do something pretty dramatic. Now, this person, however, would rather stay and receive his inheritance than pursue the ministry and all of its challenges. Now, it's understandable. Sometimes we, as humans, especially here in America, we sit and we contemplate a lot of things sometimes, and we try to weigh them and the rationale. You know, I don't want to put all my eggs in one basket. I want to make sure I'm doing the right thing. And I pray more about it and talk to more talking heads and read more books and take more, you know, uh, notes and more conferences and bounce it off this person or whatever. And we're always sometimes psychoanalyzing things and there's a good time for that and not so much of a good time. And in this case, a guy's like, look, he's weighing his options. Lord, I'd really like to do that, but I really want to see my, my, my parents off before they die so I can receive the inheritance then I can be funded and then I'll pursue the ministry. That's not what Jesus is saying here. The kingdom of God is far more important than our affairs or convenience on earth. Now notice Luke gives this account that Matthew doesn't. It's a third person. And another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. So the scribe says, I will follow you. I will accompany you wherever you go. And Jesus says, no, you won't. It's, you're, not, you're, you're not willing to do what you think you're willing to do. Jesus calls this individual out, yeah, but let me go get my inheritance first and then I'll follow you. And Jesus says, no, you go proclaim the kingdom of God, not proclaim your own wealth. Second person chimes in and says, I'll follow you, Lord, meaning like I'll step up and do what you're calling these people to do, but let me first take care of business. And of course, Jesus's response in verse 62 to this individual is, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What is he saying? Jesus is stressing. Please hear me, my friend. Jesus is stressing that to be his follower, you must have a singular focus. There should be no divided interests when it comes to advancing the kingdom 
of heaven. Did you catch that? That's what Jesus is saying to this person here in Luke chapter 9. He's saying, you are not to have a divided interest when it comes to advancing my purposes. When you look back in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 20, remember Elisha? We are told there that Elisha left the oxen and he ran after Elijah and he said, let me kiss my father, my mother, and then I will follow you. And Elijah said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? Now, one commentary writes, no excuses for delay in following Jesus are allowed. Burial duties were regarded as prior to all other obligations. Let the dead bury their own dead means either let that duty look after itself or leave that task to the spiritually dead. There could be no turning back in the service of Jesus any more than a backward-looking plowman can expect to plow a straight pharaoh. Jesus' reply is more rigorous than what we see here in 1 Kings chapter 19. So all of these, these sayings that were expressed in every account shows an absolute commitment. The scribe wasn't willing to do it. The man that Jesus called out wasn't willing to do it. And the man who showed the crowd, hey, I'm willing to do it, wasn't willing to do it. So again, my friends, the question before us, what are you willing? What are you willing to give up for Jesus? What is Jesus tugging at your heart right now? What conviction do you have right now that's causing you not to sleep? That's on the forefront of your mind every time you wake up and you go before God in prayer. What are the kind of conversations you're having with loved ones, with your spouse, with your family, with a colleague, with a pastor friend at church? God is calling you. I know he's calling you, my friend, to do greater things than what you're doing right now. And I just pray that after looking at these different events, when we looked at the rejection that Jesus went through with his brothers, when the Samaritans rejected him, and then these three individuals basically rejected him, that we as his followers are not rejecting him. That doesn't mean we reject him as savior, but if we're truly honest with ourselves, we look at the lack of faith sometimes that we live by, which is a sh- was, was just shameful, that we realize, man, I'm rejecting a lot of God's will in my life because I'm just not willing to be obedient. I'm not willing to sacrifice. I'm not willing to give up these things for him. And that convicts me as well, my friends. I want you to know that. So I pray this has been encouraging to you. Just know that God wants you to be that true disciple who, whatever the cost, is willing to let go of anything and everything to follow him. For more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries, visit us at standstrongministries.org. Thank you for listening and keep standing strong in the Word of God.